Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Therese Gagnon, and I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and the Department of Political Science at the University of Copenhagen. I'm joined today by Sophie Chow, who is a Discovery Early Career Research Award Fellow and Lecturer in Anthropology at the University of Sydney. Her research investigates the intersections of indigeneity, ecology, capitalism, health, and justice in the Pacific. Sophie is the author of the book In the Shadow of the Palms, More Than Human Becomings in West Papua, which you may know if you are someone who follows environmental scholarship or ethnography. And as we will be discussing today, she is also a co-editor of the book, The Promise of Multi-Species Justice, which was recently released from Duke University Press. So welcome to the podcast, Sophie. Hi, Therese. It's wonderful to be in conversation. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you. So first of all, to start things off, we'll be discussing this beautiful edited book that you are a co-editor of, The Promise of Multi-Species Justice. Could you tell us a little bit about the idea or impetus for this volume? Sure. So in the spirit of positionality that is so much at the heart of this project, I want to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the lands that I'm speaking to you from, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation here in Australia. I've been working and living on unceded Gadigal lands for the last eight years, and I will recognize the nourishing presence of Gadigal elders, past, present and emergent, and also of Gadigal kin, both human, animal, vegetal and elemental. Um, so the impetus or idea for this volume in many ways stems from my own long-standing interest in questions of justice. And that interest was first sparked from my early experiences working as a teacher in Tibet. It's then an interest that I pursued as a project officer for the Indigenous Rights Organization Forest People's Program. And later it's an interest that I pursued through long-term fieldwork and investigative research in Indonesian West Papua, where I've been particularly interested in the intersections of social, racial, environmental, and multi-species justice on the Papuan plantation frontier. This particular edited volume, I think, finds root in a strong and growing desire to ask questions about justice in conversation with others. And like so many other critical themes of these times, these questions of justice cannot be answered alone. So that was what brought my co-editors, Evan Kirksey, Karen Boulder, and myself to bring together a multidisciplinary, multi-regional group of anthropologists, geographers, philosophers, science fiction writers, poets, and fine artists to really try to track together the contours of justice as it travels across space and time, from courtrooms to protest movements, from the abstract realm of theory to the more kind of spectral domain of ghosts, ancestors, and spirits. Together, we wanted to try to understand how dominant hierarchies of life that place humans above other species are being subverted or resisted across different cultural and ecological milieus. We were interested in what justice might smell like, look like, feel like, maybe even taste like in uncharismatic spaces like toxic waste dumps, racialized prisons and industrial plantations. 
I think more than anything, we were really interested in being creative and experimental with justice, looking less for principles and universal themes than in stories and situated knowledges around justice across space and across time. So in some regards, then the volume, you could say, stems from a desire to bring a kind of coalitional thinking into flourishing across different fields, across different sites, in ways that might offer other kinds of possibilities for shared living in more than human worlds. Thank you so much. It definitely feels like a coalitional flourishing when you read it. So I think that's a really wonderful way to describe it. For those who may be unfamiliar, could you explain a little bit about what multi-species ethnography is? Absolutely. So the field of multi-species ethnography sits alongside a number of consonant currents like the environmental humanities and multi-species studies, as well as new materialism and post-humanism that are all in one way or another trying to push beyond the nature-culture divide that has been such a dominant and successful export of Western imperial epistemologies. To think beyond a nature-culture divide, as multi-species ethnographers attempt to do, is then also to try to think beyond assumptions of what is often called human exceptionalism. That is to say, the idea that the human species is somehow superior to other kinds of organisms who inhabit this planet. Instead, multi-species ethnography is about trying to track and trace the stories, lives, relations, biographies of other-than-human organisms, plants, animals, but also ecosystems, elements, climates, atmospheres, and so forth. It's an approach that's very much grounded in reflective thinking around the ethics of what it means to live in always already more than human worlds. It's a current that's also very ethnographic in its methods, as the name suggests, that is to say, grounded in long-term participant observation, sensory immersion, the cultivation of what is known as arts of attentiveness, a kind of attuning and noticing of everything that's always going on in our world that happens outside or beyond the realm of humans themselves. So in that respect, you could say that multi-species ethnography is as much ethnography or something that has to do with ethnos or peoples as it is a kind of ethography that has to do with ethos or life way or way of life writ far larger than just the human. So lively ethnography is another way of thinking about what multi-species ethnography is and tries to do. Thank you so much, Sophie. Next, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you see multi-species ethnography engaging with the emerging field of multi-species justice, of which this volume is very much a part. So the promise of multi-species justice is very much in conversation with what is essentially a relatively nascent or embryonic interdisciplinary attention to the question of justice in multi-species worlds. So justice takes us a little further, or perhaps in a slightly different direction than other sort of concepts with which we might think feel our way through these multi-species worlds. Concepts like care, concepts like dignity, concepts like entanglement. Justice demands more from us, because in some ways you shouldn't have to care or love or be entangled with a non-human being to treat it in a way that is just and fair, right? So the ethical stakes, I think, are heightened when we start to frame the multi-species world through the lens of justice. At the same time, I think there's some really important continuities at play across multi-species ethnography and multi-species justice, whether it's in relation to both currents critical attention to the situatedness of knowledges, practices and perceptions surrounding justice, and whether it's the attention to questions of the ways in which we represent more than human worlds and the potential or limits of ourselves as humans in apprehending and understanding these more than human worlds. And also, I think, questions of violence and injustice 
that this volume certainly responds to as part of a broader response to the call of many scholars to politicize multi-species ethnography, right? To bring in an element of power and privilege that to some extent has been lacking to date. At the same time, I think multi-species ethnography is informing itself through conversations with justice by really thinking critically about the hierarchies of worth and value that have historically and continue to position certain humans as non-human, subhuman, or not yet human before the law. So I'm thinking here about racialized, marginalized peoples across the world who continue to be subject to racializing assemblages and whose struggles for sovereignty and for justice make us rethink what it might mean to expand the scope and subject of justice beyond the human, whilst also accounting for peoples who continue to be denied full humanity before the law. What I think multi-species ethnography can offer in that attempt is an attention to the partiality and patchiness of justice, that justice is often more for some worlds than for others. The question is, can we shift which worlds it's more or less for? It's also an approach that makes us return to some of the most fundamental or basic questions, like what counts as nature or the environment and according to whom? Who benefits from multi-species relationships and who lose out? And are humans always in control of what justice is or who distributes it? So these kinds of big questions, I think, are relevant across disciplines. And indeed, multi-species justice is deeply interdisciplinary for that reason. Thank you. I have to say I was really excited when this volume came out because these are definitely big questions that I'm attempting to grapple with in small ways in my own work and lots of scholars I engage with are also doing the same. So I think it was really wonderful to have this volume speak to that and be part of this conversation. So I think it's going to be very useful to lots of people. Also, this collection opens up questions and understandings about both species and justice, rather than, as you mentioned, trying to necessarily define these concepts. For example, in the volume, you ask, importantly, justice for whom or what as kind of a guiding question that we might always carry with us when we're thinking about multi-species ethnography or multi-species justice. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about some of the other questions that you're asking about justice in this volume. Absolutely. As you say, the collection opens up questions, and I think we do more of that than anything else, to be honest with you. Anyone looking for a definitive definition of justice, or let alone a way to put it into practice, will be sorely disappointed. But I think there is power to inconclusiveness and speculation, because it also creates space for reflection and a refusal of closure in any any particular form or shape. So yes, many questions that I think it's important to preface by noting are not entirely new, right? And the same goes for that matter for multi-species studies and you know, multi-species ethnography, that these are new currents in a sort of academic sphere, but they are dealing with questions and relations and tensions and frictions that have always been part of more than human worlds and that have long been theorized and long been philosophized by peoples across the world, particularly indigenous communities like the ones in West Papua, whom I've had the great privilege to learn from and think with over the course of the last decade. We certainly face challenges in trying to define some of our key terms. Species, for instance, have obviously brought us up against the sort of privacy of a dominant secular scientific frameworks for understanding life. And justice brought us to engage with the work of indigenous scholars like Eve Tuck and Leanne Simpson, who are in fact highly critical of the concept of justice itself as a settler colonial paradigm or framework. And justice was often quite slippery for many of us. We would find ourselves talking about care and then there were some glossages with justice. So the, the slipperiness of that term in itself was interesting to observe and to sort of think, feel our way through. 
as much as we challenge, we struggled with thinking with and beyond species and justice, the edited volume does offer a quite thought-provoking glossary of justice, or what we term species of justice. And it's a pretty short section, but what it does is that it offers to the reader a kind of ecology of terms, some of which predate the volume, you know, terms like distributive justice, substantive justice, transitional justice, but other terms that are new and fleshed out by the brilliant contributors to the volume. Concepts like multi-world justice, little justices, generative justice, and even spectral justice. Again, what we're trying to do here is to play or experiment with different modes and modalities and indeed idioms of justice as a kind of principle and as a kind of practice. What are some of the other big questions we ask? Well, I think the main one is who are the subjects of justice in shared worlds? How can we imagine that subject beyond the individual and beyond the human towards the relational and the more than human? What do we then do with non-human subjects of justice that might be harmful or detrimental to human and other than human worlds? I'm thinking here about pathogens, pests, tsunamis, the coronavirus. Another big question we kept asking ourselves was, if we're going to start by thinking about justice from a situated, specific ethnographic context, can we then transpose or scale up these practices of justice to other sites and other places? And connected to that, I think we were asking ourselves, as you invited me in your question, to really consider justice for whom or for what. And that question for us was really the one that brought us to problematize the we or the communities of us that we mm. tend to invoke without often a huge amount of characterization when talking about worlds and relations, right? Multi-species justice emerges within fields of power where who counts in the world and whose world counts is at stake. And that applies as much to plants and animals and ecosystems as it does to peoples, human peoples, who are themselves subject to the diminishing violence of techno-capitalism and racial colonial capitalism. So thinking through questions of race and human difference, and most importantly, trying to learn and seek inspiration in thinking through these questions from subaltern struggles for justice across species lines was absolutely vital. Thank you so much, Sophie. I think the chapters together do such a beautiful job of speaking to that and all their beautiful differences. So to think about some of the chapters in particular, of course, I wish we had time to dwell on all of them in this podcast, but I'll have to leave it to our listeners to read the volume. However, while the knotted geographies of these various chapters are entangled in many ways, two of the chapters are specifically situated within Asia. So I was wondering if first you could tell us a little bit about Radhika Govinda Rajan's chapter on spectral justice in India and the implications of her argument. Absolutely. So it's so hard to do justice, pun intended, to the incredible diversity and richness of each of the book's chapters. And I said chapters, they include poems and also illustrations by Fei-Fei Zhou from the Feral Atlas. So yeah, I'll happily take up your invitation in the hope that it will invite attention to the other contributors as well. So Radhika Govindrajan is an anthropologist who works in the Indian Himalayas. And in her chapter, she invites the reader to consider what justice might entail when it is non-human beings themselves who demand justice from the humans who have caused them to suffer a violent death. And she takes us to her ethnographic setting, a mountainous region of the Indian Himalayas, and the interaction between a woman from a village in the area and the tar carcass of a dismembered bull who has been killed by a leopard and whose body is at the, lying on the side of the road. This woman is tormented by dreams of the dead bull in her sleep. Night and night over, the bull demands justice from her. 
The woman tries to enact rituals to try to offer a sort of peace or to the animal in its afterlife. And yet she continues to be haunted by its spirit or its specter. At the same time, the chapter is really trying to invite us to think about situations of justice where there's in fact no clear consensus on what justice might mean in practice and by whom it should be delivered. So even amongst the human protagonists of Radhika's chapter, different people disagree on whether A, animals have agency, B, whether they will demand justice, and C, how does one then deliver that justice? So again, we're really in the realm of situatedness and heterogeneous perspectives, even in any one particular locale over what justice is and who is its subject. And it's that rich ethnography that brings Radhika to coin in her chapter the concept of what she calls spectral justice. Spectral justice is a form of justice that troubles the boundaries between life, death and the afterlife. It's one that invites us to think about the haunting force of ancestors, the deceased, of ghosts who can sometimes enter our worlds and prompt us in different forms to redress injury or repair or damaged relations. But spectral justice is not something that can be subject to laws or regulation or governance, right? It's something incomplete, incohate, much like a ghost in itself. But what Radhika's arguing there is that perhaps we do need to think about multi-species justice beyond the species and beyond bios. As she says, sometimes you have to become a ghost to demand justice. And that, you know, sentence in some ways crystallizes her point that the spiritual, the transcendent matters when we try to think about what matter matters to whom and what it might do to offer, what it might mean to offer dignity to beings to whom that dignity has been denied in this world and in this life. Thank you so much. Following on that, could you describe a little bit for our listeners, Alyssa Paredes' chapter titled We Are Not Past, which is situated in the Philippines, including what kinds of solidarities are at stake in this context that she's describing? Absolutely. In some ways, Alisa's chapter works beautifully well in counterpoints of sorts to Radhika's, because whereas Radhika is thinking with spectrality, Alisa is thinking with solidarity. But solidarity is that, while more than the human in some respect, also raise some really big and important questions about human difference and human sort of hierarchies of worth. And Alisa takes us her ethnographic context, the banana plantation belt in Mindanao in the Philippines. And she asks what multi-species or how multi-species dynamics shape the language of protest among local activists who have waged an environmental justice campaign against aerially sprayed fungicides that are sprayed across the plantations and that subject both pests and people to life in the chemical haze. And she centers her analysis on a slogan that's deployed by these activists, which goes, we are not pests. So in the chapter, Alisa explores how, in some ways, activists in the Philippines deploy nature culture divides as a way of reestablishing or reinstituting themselves as entities of worth as a result of their understanding that existing legal, jurisdictional and institutional systems will only be legible or they will only be legible to those systems if they frame their struggles in nature culture terms, right? So there's a kind of disavowal of the pests, the objects of these pesticides, a disavowal of the subhuman that people find themselves forced to harness as a way of salvaging their own forms of survivance in the plantation nexus. And Alisa doesn't stop there. As with many things, she takes her analysis to ever more thought-provoking depths. And she asks in a very speculative mode, what if the slogan for struggles for environmental justice were not framed around, we are not pests, but rather around the slogan, we too are pests, right? Quite provocative. 
But what Paredes is trying to do there, and very much in conversation with the voices of critical race scholars like Joshua Bennett, Frederick Douglass, Kapitul Mavunga, is to try to think beyond exclusionary hierarchies of worth, to recognize that vulnerabilities are always violently distributed across species divides, but that there are possibilities for multi-species solidarities that can be enabled if the structures and institutions and systems that entrench those hierarchies and categories can in themselves be dismantled. So that's sort of where Alisa is inviting us to think and act uh, in her chapter. Thank you so much for that really lovely overview, Sophie. I recently saw Alisa speak at a Cornell presentation virtually, and then reading her chapter right after that, I got goosebumps reading that final portion, which you just described. So it was extremely powerful. And I'm wondering now if you would be willing to speak a little bit about your own research in West Papua. It emerges in moments in the introduction of this volume, and as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, is delved into in detail in your recent ethnographic book, In the Shadow of the Palm. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about your research, but also some of the present realities playing out in West Papua, including the creative forms of interspecies solidarity that you describe, which have emerged in some of the protest movements against the violent oppression there. Absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak to that complementary line of work, Therese. It's interesting you ask because, you know, the original formulation of this multi-species justice project was entirely centered on West Papua. The idea was to work with Papuan para-ethnographers and activist researchers to really unpack and untangle intersectional struggles for justice across racial, social and environmental and multi-species lines. COVID happened, and that's why that project didn't happen. But of course, there are rippling currents of that research in the book itself, particularly in the introduction. So my research in Papua really has focused primarily on trying to understand how indigenous marine peoples in the lowlands of the region experience, theorize, critique, and contest the deeply diminishing impacts of industrial oil palm expansion on their more than human life worlds and relations. And we're talking about a world region that is ongoingly settler colonized since the 1960s, a place where people continue to be denied sovereignty over land and futures, but also a place where radical environmental transformations are being understood, challenged, resisted in incredibly complex and theoretically incisive ways by people who are in many ways most deeply and directly mired in this fraught predicament of multi-species injustice. Interspecies solidarity is a big part of that story. And it emerged in the course of my fieldwork in Papua in all kinds of different and fascinating guises, guises that I didn't originally really pay attention to because they were so vastly different to the way I understood struggles and sovereignty and even being and, and ontology and agency. The kind of interspecies solidarities I'm talking about involve marines identifying in some ways indexicalities or affinities between their own fates and futures under settler colonial orders and those of an array of plants, animals, and other beings who, together with Marind, form shared communities of fate in the face or in the teeth of racial colonial capitalism. And in the book, in the introduction, I draw on one of these examples of interspecies solidarities through the figure of the monkey, which is a figure that regained renewed prominence during a spate of anti-racism protests brought across West Papua and Indonesia, coinciding in part with the Black Lives Matter movement in the US. And during those protests, many Papuan activists and also Indonesian supporters donned costumes of monkeys as they walked through the streets demanding racial justice. Some of them had posters saying we are not monkeys, but many had posters saying we are monkeys. 
what was going on there as I flesh out more fully in an article version of that extract in American Ethnologist is that Papuans understand that the monkey is deployed as a racialized slur against them but in popular Indonesian discourse but they also refuse to reduce the monkey to a racialized bichalized and therefore less than important being the monkey too has a word of its own it too has its own kind of sentience and agency it too counts in the world and has a world that count right so to refuse to not be a monkey is also to refuse not giving a monkey the world that it inhabits and merits if you wish so that's where the kind of counter hegemonic push against the bestialization of papuans as non-human beings comes to the fore and it's one of many examples of these sorts of interspecies solidarities papuans whom i worked with identify some really powerful inequalities between their own struggle for justice and the sabotaging effects of parasites in oil palm plantations who sort of undermine capitalist visions by turning the oil palm into a host and source of food. Others identify solidarities with species that have learned to coexist with the oil palm, or what we call mutualists. These beings point less to struggle protest as pathways to better futures, and perhaps more to mutual accommodation coexistence and living together through negotiation. And some marines also even talk about solidarities with the oil palm itself, this introduced plant that many talk about as a colonizer and intruder, but one that many of my friends also acknowledge is also itself a victim to the machinations of capitalism, of technoscience, being that itself is also a victim in the sense that its entire life and career as plant and as part and as product is subject to the dictates of forces that are beyond its control, much like the marind themselves. So those are just some of the many examples of the ways in which coalitional solidarities are being forged in incredibly imaginative, philosophical, and I would say political and ethically charged ways by the marind of West Papua. Thank you, Sophie. I'm also thinking about the conclusion, and you and your co-editors write there quite powerfully about the concept of fugitivity. And I'm wondering if you could say a few words about the power and potentiality that you see there in the concept of fugitivity. Absolutely. So the afterwards in the book, the section you're referring to, it is quite literally so in the sense that it's a section that problematizes the potential and limits of words and language, human language in apprehending, grappling with, and then communicating or representing more than human lives, worlds, and relations. And although the chapter is authored by three of us, it is first and foremost the labor of love of the fabulous Karen Bolander. I'm not even going to try to attempt to do justice to her craft. But what that section is trying to do with the concept of fugitivity is to really, firstly, seek inspiration and center the long-standing tradition of indigenous and decolonial art, activism and scholarship that centers this practice of fugitivity as a form of creative resistance, right, to hegemonic world orders, a practice that overflows and resists these sorts of colonial confinements and classifications and containment. So I'm thinking here of the works of Black queer, Latin American, Asian and indigenous scholars who center the figure of the fugitive as a being who resists, who marks, who defies top-down colonial impositions in their ongoing struggle against social and sometimes literal death. Fugitivity is, in the words of Fred Moten, whom we cite, a desire for and a spirit of escape and transgression of what is proper and what is proposed. The claim in this afterward is that fugitive lives matter, and those lives are human, and they're more than human. They include displaced peoples, plants and animals, who are finding or forging new kinds of refuges in unexpected places, like urban wastelands, state prisons, banana plantations, and other spaces. 
It's an approach that makes us think about fugitivity in the sense that goes beyond the law, right? That perhaps escapes the bounds of laws and languages across any land. And it invites us, I suppose, to consider the ways in which non-human beings like insects and plants and spores and all kinds of other fugitive outlaws might also be enacting their own kinds of little fugitive justices um, in the unnoticed of the everyday. So here, really, the fugitive really helps us think through the mattering of lives, you know, what kind of matter matters for whom, and how we might, again, forge coalitional thinking across and within species lines and trying to think about everything that escapes the bounds of what we can know, let alone speak to or represent through words and writs, including this book. Thank you so much, Sophie. I have to say, I am a big fan of Karen Belinder's writing, too. She is such a beautiful writer. So uh, as we approach the end of our conversation, I'm wondering if there's anything upcoming related to this volume or your own work that our listeners might be interested to know about. Yeah, there's a couple of exciting projects in the work that might be worth keeping an eye out for if anyone interested in following the multi-species justice conversation. One is a fabulous special issue that's coming out in April in Cultural Politics, co-edited by Danielle Sellemeyer at the Sydney Environment Institute and myself, which is centered on multi-species justice. It involves or features some gorgeous pieces by cultural theorists, including Estuda Mimanis, indigenous political theorists like Christine Winter, anthropologists like Daniel Ruiserna, art historians like Surya Chatterjee. And all of the pieces in that collection are in some ways doing something different and very much complementary to what the edited volume is doing by thinking through the question of institutions and policies and governance and how to really enact um, justice in real world terms. The second exciting project coming up that I'm working on, so I don't think it's quite, it's work in progress for sure, so a bit of a longer timeline, is a book that I've been working on very much in conversation with Papuan women in Meroke, where I conduct my field work. And it's a book about multi-species justice in the context of food, diet, and nourishment. It's a book about what it means to rethink relations of eating and being eaten in an age of self-devouring growth, and what we can learn from indigenous philosophies and practices and protocols of multi-species nourishment in trying to find a way out of this epoch of planetary unraveling and metabolic injustices. And the last shout out I want to make um, is for anyone who may be passing by the Met in New York in early 24, 2024. The Oceania Art Gallery will be opening in the beginning of that year. And I've been incredibly generously invited to do the recordings for the Sego collection in the gallery. And a lot of those segments in the recording are, first of all, words and songs from my Papuan friends themselves, and also commentaries and stories about justice in a place where possibilities for justice across species lines remain alive and continue to sprout and grow from the soil, even as that soil is exhausted and in some ways dying. Wow, thank you so much. We will definitely keep an eye out for forthcoming publications and especially the installation. So in our final moments, I'm wondering if there is any art or poetry or scholarship that you might like to call in inspiring you at this moment. So it's a tough one. So many brilliant junior and established scholars come to mind. But let me pull out from the mix one scholar, poet, activist, artist, whose thinking and practice has been absolutely seminal to my own thinking around questions of justice. And that scholar is Craig Santos Perez, who is an indigenous Chamorro poet and scholar based at the University of Hawaii, who in fact contributed several poems to the promise of multi-species volume, and who published a book last year titled Navigating Chamorro Poetry, Indigeneity, Aesthetics and Decolonization. And it is an absolutely 
moving, thought-provoking, challenging gift uh, to anyone who's interested in understanding what Perez calls way reading, which is a kind of practice of navigating through texts, through scholarship, through literature, the incredible complex relationship between poetry, identity, politics, migration, and aesthetics seen from the perspective of an indigenous Chamorro scholar and activist. The book is absolutely gorgeous because it engages in equal measure with the profound and traumatic histories of colonialism, militarism, and ecological imperialism that have been part of the life world of the Chamorro people, as it does with acts of resistance, protests, survivors, and testimony that are also an equally part of the story of what it means to be from Guahan and to be a person of Guahan. And that, that ability that Craig has to navigate that fine line between the story of defiance and destruction and suffering and survivance is one that I continue to struggle with. And I think there is no better exemplar for how to do that well and how to tell these bitter stories about loss of destruction in ways that make space for better kinds of crafts of storytelling and also analysis. Thank you so much, Sophie. Yes, I was so moved by Craig's poetry in the volume, and that's really wonderful to know about this book. So we will certainly keep an eye out for that as well. And I just want to conclude by saying thank you so much. I have been in conversation with Sophie Chow. My name is Therese Gagnon, and you, our dear listener, have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, which is a collaboration showcasing research on Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.